believe in yourself Cause it starts with you And then everyone else will believe you too And if it looks like you're the only believer around Just keep on believing, don't put yourself down Our guest this week grew up in Bethesda, Maryland and earned a BS degree from Georgetown and a doctorate of medicine from Georgetown School of Medicine. From 1977 to 96, he served as a U.S. Army officer and rose to the rank of colonel. He's known for his work in the early years of the HIV infection and AIDS. And from 2018 to 2021, he served as the director of the Centers of Disease Control, the CDC. An American virologist and infectious disease clinician, his name, Dr. Robert Redfield, Jr. And I'm Jack Rasool, and this is Anything is Possible on News Talk 760 WJR. I'm Jack Rasool, this is Anything is Possible, and we're talking to a man who served our country for over 40 years, and then he became famous overnight. Little more than two years ago, he was the director of the Center of Disease Controls, the CDC. And suddenly we were watching him and Dr. Burks and Tony Fauci and the Trumpster every day. So Dr. Welcome, an honor to have you. Thanks, Jack, glad to be here. Um, can we start by talking about your childhood and your parents, please? Well, Jack, we can. I mean, I uh, had uh, my father uh, was a physician, went to Hopkins and then University of Chicago and then came to be a scientist, a physician at NIH, deeply committed to the power of science, um, really working hard to uh, try to figure out at the time the big question about the genetic code. And sadly, my dad died in 1956. Um, I will say that from his group, three people independently went on to win the Nobel Prize in medicine. So these individuals were great scientists. My mother, uh, had thought she had an opportunity to live a great life. Obviously very saddened by my father's death. She had three children, age one, age three, and age five. I was the oldest. Uh, she went, I remember when my dad died, she didn't even have a driver's license. Um, and then she spent a little time trying to recover. We went out to my dad's family in, in Utah. And when she came back, she went to work for NIH. And she did a lot of important science herself, learning the um, a lot about how the body made um, proteins. Uh, so there's always a great reverence for science in my family. But the other thing my mother was, was uh, uh, she was a woman of deep faith. Um, she, and she instilled that into her three children. Um, it's interesting, uh, you know, when you look at the issue of all things are possible. My mother was the first to teach me something that stayed with me my whole life and actually was one of the phrases I used as NIA uh, CDC director was that in God, all things are possible. When people would say, oh, that's not possible. Not that's not possible. No, in God, all things are possible. And she was a, she was a great uh, woman. She had died, unfortunately, a month after I became CDC director. A very spiritual death for me. I went to visit her. She was comatose. And uh, she had my brother with me and and all of a sudden she woke up. And I'd seen this before because I worked closely with Mother Teresa's nuns and dealing with men that were dying of AIDS. And they taught me uh, recognizing some of the signs that uh, happen for people when they are um, close to death. And many, many of them woke up. 
And she woke up and she looked at me and, and one eye was focused on the ceiling and the other eye was focused on me and, and then went around the whole room. It's impossible because, you know, as a physician, I know that that doesn't happen. There's this conjugate gaze, but, and eventually she shouted out my father's name and um, reached her hands out to touch him. And then she died. We're talking to Dr. Robert Redfield. And when we met Dr. two months ago in Lake Nona, you were giving a talk to 500 people. And I cornered you and asked if you'd come on the show and maybe you were a little hesitant. And then you said, Jack, what's the name of the show? And I said, well, with God, anything is possible. And you put your hand in your pocket and you pulled out a little coin. And on the one side is a cross. And on the other side is the words, with God, all things are possible. So you've given that coin out many, many times. What happens when you give that coin out? You know, Jack, I carry it with me all the time. And it's a big pass forward coin for me. You know, as a physician, I've dealt with many people that are confronting serious challenges, you know, illness, death. As a physician in the 80s, uh, an AIDS physician, most of my patients died. Most of them were under the age of 35, 40. Um, and, you know, I'm a big believer in what this says. With, with God, all things are possible. Um, you know, one, one of my roles as a physician, I remember I had the privilege of spending time with Pope John Paul. Um, actually, I attribute him to my Paulinian conversion. I have maybe not talked to you about that, but I always, you know, I evolved uh, in my faith, uh, really through the eyes as a scientist. And, you know, God was an energy force. Well, I had a chance to meet John Paul and spend some time with him. And he told me that God was not an energy force. And I needed to develop a personal relationship with him. Second thing, he told me that prayers were not an illusion. They, like Freud, and we learned in medical school, prayer was the most powerful tool I had access to, and I needed to learn how to use it. And the third thing he told me was that there was redemptive value in human suffering. Uh, I said, you know, Pope John Paul, I, 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 you know, as a doctor, I can't buy that. I don't see any value in my patient's suffering. Um, and uh, several years later, he invited me to be part of the World Day for the Sick at Lourdes, which was the first celebration of the sick and the redemptive value that uh, they had, the power to bring into the, our universe. And, you know, I had studied his encyclical on human suffering. But what I witnessed there uh, was actually the redemptive value of human suffering. And I tried to bring that back to my clinical practice that, uh, uh, you know, I don't understand it, but clearly human suffering has redemptive value and we shouldn't run away from it. We should help give people the, the power and the courage to use that strength when and if we're asked to uh, have to endure human suffering. So it was uh, my meetings with John Paul and I met him twice, but it was when I say it was a Paulinian conversion, I really mean it because I had rationalized my faith in terms of science and, 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 and not in terms of a personal relationship with God. Uh, and, and since that day, I've known that I, the key is a personal relationship with God. I have no doubt, no matter where I am in the world, no matter how I'm separated from my family, when tragedy hits, I know I have enormous power by just going into prayer. And, uh, and I do know that, you know, one of my roles as a doctor was to make sure the men and women that I had the privilege to serve um, benefited from the redemptive value of the suffering that they had. We're talking to Dr. Robert Redfield. When we come back, we're going to ask him about the Pope's favorite saying, 
It's also the most used saying in the Bible. It's used 365 times. Come back when we come back and we'll tell you what it is. And I'm Jack Rasul and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Welcome back to Anything is Possible. I'm Jack Prasula. We're with Dr. Robert Redfield. Have you ever been called Robert Redford? You know, Jack, uh, there were times, many people introduced me that way. Uh, the times that I had the most advantage is when I walked into a restaurant and they were expecting Robert Redford because I made a reservation. And I will, I will say I never saw a greater disappointment in the maitre d's face when my wife and I walked in. Well, you look like Robert Redford wishes he looked, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Anything is possible. All right. The most used phrase in the Bible, and St. John Paul II's greatest phrase was, be not afraid. What are your thoughts on that phrase? You know, Jack, it's so important. You know, at the time he wrote his book, Be Not Afraid, um, I think it's just such an important underscoring of our faith. Um we know how the we know how the story ends. We know who's in charge. Um, yes, there are going to be trials and tribulations. Um, yes, we're all going to be asked to carry a cross. But at the end of the day, um, we need to embrace that phrase: "Be not afraid." It's not about fear. Fear is not of God, and uh, fear is really the other side of God. Uh, evil forces in our world. And I think the Pope really tried to send a major message when he wrote that book, Be Not Afraid. Uh, I think it was a time when there was enormous fear in the world. And you could say today, as we sit here today, there's probably many people, there's enormous fear in the world. Uh, you know, I was um, thankful that President Biden, in his speech he gave the other day, he started it with the Pope's words, Be Not Afraid. Um, I think... Um, I think it's important. I think it's really an important message uh, that we can't get paralyzed by fear. We need to move forward. We need to take risk. And we need to remember the one thing that you and I talked about in Orlando. With God, all things are possible. So why are we afraid? We need to pray. And we need to hope that we align ourselves to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. All right, let's go back to 1977. You joined the U.S. Army. And you served over 20 years, rose to the rank of colonel, and you did your residency at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, a special place. Talk about that magical place. Well, it was a wonderful institution. Actually, when I graduated from Georgetown, I was opening mail the day of graduation, you know, trying to hope I was getting some checks from some of my relatives. And one of the letters I opened uh, had an official government letter. And when I opened it, it said, congratulations, um, you're to report for active duty. I think it was June 7th, uh, 1973 at Fort Bragg. In other words, I was called up and I said, no, 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 I'm going to go to medical school. And the Army said, no, 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 you're to report for active duty. And it was, uh, I think it was signed by Richard Nixon, actually. And um, I had to go to active duty. I went to basic training down at, uh, at Fort Bragg. And I asked on multiple occasions to be postponed to be able to do my medical school at Georgetown since I had been accepted to medical school. And they told me that wasn't possible, that I was going to go to Vietnam. And lo and behold, sometime in the summer of 73, the United States stopped sending soldiers to Vietnam. 
And they turned to me in the middle of basic training and said, well, you don't need to go to Vietnam. We're not sending you to Vietnam. And I said, well, can I go to medical school? And they said, yes, uh, we'll send you to medical school under one condition that you stay in the U.S. Army while you go to medical school. And so the Army put me through medical school. And when I finished, I got to go to Walter Reed. What a gift it was. As you said, Walter Reed uh, was a very, very special price. I, I guess it still is. I, I kind of wish it was on the old Army grounds. It's now been moved to the Bethesda Navy uh, grounds. But it's a very special price. And the men and women that uh, serve our nation as physicians and healthcare providers are very, very special people. And I had the opportunity. And at the time, I don't know if I appreciated it to the degree I do now. But what an opportunity to spend 23 years at Walter Reed, uh, learning medicine, more importantly, with an eye on the world. You know, I had assignments in Pakistan, Afghanistan border, I had assignments in Africa, I had assignments in, in Brazil, I had assignments in Southeast Asia. Um, I got to see the whole world while my family was anchored here at Walter Reed in Washington. All right. Speaking of opportunities, let's go to the early 80s. And we have this onset of HIV AIDS, and you're one of the pioneers in that challenge. What did that teach you, doctor? You know, it's really important, Jack. First and foremost, you know, it taught me the value of being a physician. Um, at the time, a lot of physicians were not comfortable taking care of AIDS patients. I can even remember my wife, and she's a wonderful woman, uh, wasn't really certain that I should actually probably live at home. Maybe I should get a hotel room and live there while I was taking care of all the AIDS patients. And if you remember saying elsewhere and others had TV shows uh, showing similar. Uh, I remember when I bring my patients home to our house for meals because I wanted to surround them with the people that cared about them. And many of them, particularly the women patients in the early 80s, they had no support groups at all. I used to actually schedule all the women patients to see me at Walter Reed on the same several days and put them up in the same hotel because they came from all over the country so that they would meet each other. So then they would have um, uh, begin to build a support group because there weren't a lot of support groups for women with HIV in 1984-85. And I would invite them to our house for meals. And I remember my wife, the first day we had the group coming, she had all these paper plates and plastic forks and paper things. And I said, Joy, we're not using paper plates. And, and, and she, okay, okay. And she put our regular plates out on the table and the silverware. And one of my wonderful patients, Linda was her first name. Uh, she turned and she said, Mrs. Redfield, I'm not going to eat from this plate. I need a paper plate. And I said, Linda, you don't need a paper plate. And she said, yes, I do. I need a paper plate. I said, no, you don't. And she said, yes, I do. Because when I was at Bethesda Navy Hospital, as a patient, they only served me food on paper plates. And if they felt that uh, they didn't need to do that, they wouldn't do that. And I said, Linda, you don't need a paper plate. You know, and my wife said to her, Linda, you don't need a paper plate. We're not taking any risk here. Okay. And so um, it was, you know, it was a powerful experience. The second thing I remember from it, because of my relationships with NIH, Bob Gallo's group and, and Tony Fauci's group, I got involved in, in unraveling the science of HIV. And, and actually, I'm on the original paper in science, in science the journal Science, on unraveling the etiology of AIDS. And I did a lot of work with Fauci's group on the immunology of it. So I saw the power of science that took what was originally a medical curiosity with no etiology. My patients had a 10-month survival, and then rapidly I saw new therapy being developed. I was involved in the first trial of AZT, and, 
And then rapidly, as I took care of you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, before I left the army, my patients were living in natural lifetime. So, and when I went to Baltimore, I developed a big practice in the inner city of Baltimore. Ultimately, we took care of over 5,000 people living with HIV infection. They now could live a natural lifetime. So it's interesting. My last patient that died, very special woman, her name was Wanda Godwin, God wins, all right? And her dear friend, Kathy, who's alive today, has been a patient of mine now since the mid-90s. Um, these men and women now have the courage to live a natural lifetime. I was frequently misunderstood because I do believe, and I believe this to be true, and I've said this in public many times, that the men and women living with HIV infection, in my view, were the modern-day saints. They were sent here to teach us what's important. I've had no patients, and I've had hundreds of patients. I have no patient that didn't, at the end of the day, embrace HIV infection as a gift. It helped them get their life priorities lined up. Many of us have priorities that are so misguided. And I do think seeing young men and women in the prime of their life potentially develop illness and deal with it and deal with it in a redemptive way and die um, is, is an awakening. Uh, so I, I have always said that I think God will provide a solution to the AIDS epidemic when, when those modern day saints finish their job, which is to get the world focused on uh, what's important in life. Uh, too many of us are distracted by mm, fame and, and career and money. Uh, no, we need to be focused back on what is the true meaning and value of life, which I will say I'm very indebted to the men and women I've served because, you know, I got more at it than them. They help, they help me understand what's important in life. I could have easily, we could have this interview, not with you, but with others. I could have easily been talking about, you know, money or fame or this or that rather than talking about the redemptive value of human suffering. We're talking to Dr. Robert Redfield. When we come back, we're going to ask him about a modern day scourge. And I'm Jack Rasul, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. anything is possible. I'm your host, Jack Prisula. We're with the former director of the Center of Disease Controls, the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield. Doctor, 245 Americans die every day from fentanyl, and nobody cares. That's Just imagine if we lost a plane load of people every day, we'd be going crazy. 245 a day. Talk to us about this modern-day scourge. You know, Jack, uh, I can tell you someone who cares deeply, and it's me and my wife. Uh, you may know this, you may not know this, but of my six children, uh, I almost lost my, um, my third son uh, from uh, overdose with fentanyl. He has a, was a musician. He had three albums out. He was playing New York every night, different places, and he got into cocaine, and that cocaine got mixed up with fentanyl, and he almost lost his life. Um, it's interesting because I went, uh, been, went to Mass the other day, and uh, on Sunday was the prodigal son, and then the other day was a, a reading uh, from John the Fourth, which was about a gentleman asking our Lord Jesus to save his son, and Jesus said he would. Well, flashback for me on the prodigal son, at that time I knew my son was in big trouble. He had recovered from his overdose, was, his life was saved by uh, rescuers. 
Um, but I then became aware that he had a serious problem with crack cocaine and was trying to get him help and get him to accept the help. Um, I went to uh, hoping uh, to mass, you know, on the day that John the fourth was read about the gentleman asked Jesus to save his son. And Jesus said he would. Now, before that, I went to the altar and I was prostate begging Jesus to save my son because Joy and I lost our first son uh, shortly after birth. And I told him I didn't have the ability to sustain the loss of another child. And then the following Sunday my, was Easter Sunday. My son came home and he was in tears. He said he's ashamed of who he is. I said, you should never be ashamed of who you are. You're precious in the eyes of God. You have a medical problem and we need to take care of it. And he surrendered his keys to his house, his, his computer, his phone, his apartment. And the following uh, Saturday in the feast uh, on the feast of our Lady, uh, of mercy Sunday, he went into treatment and we're now seven years later and he's been in remission for seven years in recovery for seven years. And uh, it's been a gift from God. But it's fentanyl. And I became CDC director thinking I was going to go down and, and, you know, confront infections around the world, epidemics. And the first epidemic I was asked to take on was fentanyl. And it's an epidemic. The year I got there, 80,000 people died. 80,000. Right. As you know, this year, unfortunately, more than 100,000 people died. This is a terrible, terrible, terrible epidemic. And uh, we need a much more aggressive a comprehensive response to this epidemic. Um, it's personal to me because I thought I understood in drug use disorder because I was a doctor in Baltimore. 60% of my patients had used heroin. I knew this, okay? But I had no concept of the impact of drug use disorder until it came into my own family and the complexity of trying to deal with it in a positive way. Recovery should be the rule, not the exception. Uh, we have many programs in this country, but if you try to figure out which ones work and which ones don't work, you can't figure that out. And we ought to know which ones work and which ones don't work. And the ones that don't work ought to be out of business. Uh, because the fact is that um, recovery from addiction uh, should be the rule, not the exception. Now, critical to that, as you and I know, is faith. I think the way my son got through this was he learned to re-embrace his faith. He learned to ask God not his father, to heal him, because God had the power to heal him. His father didn't have the power. I could pray for him. I could, have, I could beg God. As I told you, I laid you know, on the floor in, the, in my church begging God to save my son. And I can tell you, I, I, I felt an enormous relief the next day when I went to Mass and the gospel was read, John 4. And, and in that gospel, a gentle father asked Jesus to save his son, and he said he would. I left that Mass with confidence. I didn't know how he was going to do it, but somehow God was going to save my son. And now seven years later, my son's a musician. He's alive. He no longer uses drugs. He no longer uses alcohol. He no longer uses tobacco. And finally, the last step was he, he gained a lot of weight in that journey up to probably 260 pounds. And now he's back under 190 and he looks great. And, you know, he's, he's embracing life, but embracing life from a, someone who understands totally that the person that took time to save his life was not his father, was not his mother. It was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're talking to Dr. Robert Redfield.
and God's ways are not our ways, and with God, anything is possible. So now let's go till late 2019. You're the CDC director. You're working at the pleasure of the president, Donald Trump, and you hear about something called SARS-CoV-2. Take us behind the scenes. <laughs> Tell us about those early days. You know, Jack, one of the reasons I took the job as CDC director, my wife and I prayed long and hard about it. Um, and I, we always feel that if we both come up with the same answer, then we're probably on track. There are many times we pray about stuff and we come up with two separate answers, okay? But we came up with the decision that, that you know, I trained my whole life with the skill sets uh, that would be needed for the CDC director, and I ought to say yes. And we did have a strong premonition, which I still have, that our nation's at great risk for pandemics. And I still were, still think we're at risk for the great pandemic, which I think will be a bird flu pandemic. Um, we were on a first time ever, we were really happy because my son didn't like to come back. He lives in California now, the one we talked about that almost died from fentanyl. He doesn't want to come back to the East Coast because there's just way too much triggers here. We rented a house in Western Maryland and my entire family came all my living grandchildren, all 12, or actually, actually at the time, it was probably 11, um, and all my children and all their spouses. And we were all in one house, and it was really a very special time. You know, we've not had that since, and hope to God we have it in the future. But um, uh, I got a call. It was New Year's Eve, and I got a call from my Chinese and my CDC that, and my Chinese CDC, which CDC has a, an American CDC in China, Beijing, that we had 27 cases of an unspecified pneumonia that wasn't flu. And my antenna was always up that we were going to have a pandemic. And it was probably going to be bird flu. Um, and it was going to be a, a real problem for the world. Uh, and so that's how it started. Um, I had multiple discussions with my counterpart, George Gao, who was the head of CDC China, uh, the China CDC. And fairly rapidly, we understood that there was a new epidemic started in Wuhan that was respiratory, it wasn't flu. Um, one of the early mistakes was that it got classified because of the genetic information being similar to SARS. It got classified as SARS-like, but COVID-19 is nothing like SARS. SARS causes symptomatic illness. This causes asymptomatic illness. SARS doesn't know how to go human to human. This is one of the most infectious viruses that we've ever had for humans. So that's kind of how it all started. Uh, I knew from the beginning that this was going to be a big problem. The first CDC briefing I had in February, early February, first week of February, when I asked CDC to model what we were up against. Now, you have to understand at this time, we'd had probably less than 10 cases in the U.S., no deaths. And CDC walked in and told me that they, their conservative estimate is we'll have 2.2 million people dead by September. And, you know, um, you know, I'm disappointed and sad that we had lost about 190 to 200,000 people by September. A lot of lot sacred lives lost, but um, it wasn't 2.2 million. Now, I'm not taking credit for saving 2 million lives, but I do think we had an effective response. This is a dangerous pathogen. It has an enormous propensity to cause death among the vulnerable. And, uh, uh, you know, it's it's been a and it will continue to be a problem. A lot of people don't realize that, that this virus is not going to go away. 
it's going to continue to be a problem. We have a tool that can protect against hospitalization and death. It's called vaccination. The problem with that tool is it doesn't last. As you saw, the FDA just announced yesterday that they're recommending a fourth booster. And I'm pretty confident we're going to have a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth booster. This vaccine is going to last to protect the vulnerable probably about four months. And then you need another protection. So think of it like a car that runs out of gas. We're just going to need to protect people every four four or so months until we develop a better vaccine that can last longer. So, um, but it's a, it's a real challenge. Um, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I always felt, you know, maybe that was one of the reasons I was at CDC. I was actually a virologist. I spent my life in virology. I spent my life in vaccine development. Uh, I understood viruses. I understood from the beginning that those people that were saying that we'd get through this when we had herd immunity, I tried to educate the American public uh, and the policymakers that herd immunity was not going to be operational for this virus, that we're going to have a group of people that are susceptible, they get temporarily non-susceptible, then they'd be susceptible again. So this whole myth about herd immunity was uh, not operational for this virus. And uh, we need to stay ahead of the curve by recurrent immunization. I would ask your listeners, anybody that's over 50, uh, I would strongly encourage them to get the fourth injection. This, uh, the FDA now has approved it for anybody four months after the third injection. And I would strongly encourage them to stay ahead of the curve in getting additional injections and vaccination uh, three to four months after each. The vaccines do work for this virus. They just have a, they just have a, a life expectancy, a limited, you know, limited, and they need to be, you need to be re-immunized. It's not for people to say, hey, they don't work. No, they work. And they need to be prioritized for people that are vulnerable. The immunocompromised over the age, you know, 12 in particular right now, they're approved where they're currently even recommending a fifth dose for those people right now. And obviously those of us over, over 50 need to get our fourth dose. And we need to stay on top of it because I tell you within four months, you're going to need to have your, your next dose. Talking to Dr. Robert Redfield. And when we come back, we're going to speak about the response, which we know now as Operation Warp Speed. And I'm Jack Rasool, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WGAL. Jack Rasool, host of WJR's Anything is Possible, the weekly radio visit, brings his 15 years of inspirational storytelling to hardcover. With God, anything is possible. Anything. Of Jack's more than 750 tales of defeating odds and achieving the extraordinary. Like Bob Woodruff, whose job covering the war in Iraq nearly cost him his life. And Nick Vujicic, the limbless evangelist who has stunned millions with his message of acceptance and grace. With God, anything is possible. Order now while signed copies are still available at trustinusllc.square.site. That's trustinusllc.square.site. And as Jack says, make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spohol. Anything is possible. I'm Jack Rasula. This is Anything is Possible. We're talking to Dr. Robert Redfield. Let's go back early 2020. This disease hits COVID and Donald Trump comes out and says, Operation Warp Speed. And so many people inside say impossible. Um, many famously said, I'm never going to take this vaccine. You know, talk to us about Operation Warp Speed and how well we did 
and how we did it. You know, Jack, it's really important. Uh, obviously, I was privileged to be on the board and part of it. Um, in the early days, the president made it very clear that what his expectation was from science and, and the a private public partnership is that we would have vaccines that could prevent death, hospitalizations, and serious, serious illness against this COVID by January 2021. Um, very prominent scientists on the group, you know some of them, said, Mr. President, that's not possible. It's going to take us three to seven years. Um, the president said that's not what he asked. He wanted a vaccine by January. Debbie Birx and I, coming out of the military, and I had the privilege of, uh, uh, Birx was my deputy for many years, we felt that if you got the private sector engaged and you also engaged the military for distribution, um, we could get this done. And so that's basically what the president did. And we we targeted 12, initially 12 vaccine companies, of which we narrowed down to six, that the US government invested money to help facilitate them with the mission. And it was a mission to have a vaccine that could be used in humans by January 2021. 20, and I'm, you know, it's really remarkable that um, we had three vaccines approved and eventually four vaccines approved by February. Uh, and the last two vaccines that were of that original group are probably going to be approved between now and, and July. Um, so it just shows you the power of the private sector. Probably the most important thing that was done besides empowering the private sector and then getting out of their way was the decision that was made, that we made, that, that when companies got to the phase two studies and they finished them, we actually went ahead and purchased one to $2 billion worth of vaccines so that they could upscale manufacturing so that if their vaccine worked, by the time we proved it worked, we had millions of doses for the American public. That was really the reason why it really accelerated the ability. Normally what would happen is you'd prove it worked and then you'd be in about a one or two year lag while manufacturing capability was brought up to speed. Uh, I will say this hands down that this would have never happened without President Trump's leadership here. He, he was very clear that the traditional, well, we can't do this for three to seven years, which just was not acceptable. It was not on the table. Get back, engage the private sector. They know how to do this. And I will say that General uh, the general in charge of the Army's distribution department, he, he was instrumental too. The military stepped up to the plate so that the moment the vaccine was approved, they got it distributed the next day across this country. I think it's one of the most important uh, operational programs ever done. And it really did save thousands and thousands of lives because the vaccine does save life. May not prevent infection, but it it does prevent serious illness, hospitalization, and death, provided you can keep that immunity up. Very disappointed when certain people tried to make it political and said, well, I'm not going to take that vaccine. It's a Trump vaccine. No, this was a vaccine that was made to save lives. It was really, you know, I consider it personally, because you know I'm a man of faith, I think it was a miracle that we were able to have our government pull everybody together, everybody together, and really come from the time it was launched in May by the middle of December is when the first vaccines were being distributed. Um, and it saved a lot of lives. And sir, you and your team have saved millions of lives too. Mm -hmm. All right, we've got a minute left. What if we close us out tonight by you leading us in a closing prayer, if you would? Well, Jack, I appreciate you doing that. Um, 
I think we should, we should give thanks to God. Um, we should give thanks to God from where I sit always for the power of science, which I've always felt is a God-given gift and that we shouldn't leave it on the shelf. I get frustrated when people don't want to use the gifts of science that we have, particularly let's talk about vaccination being one of the most powerful gifts from science to modern medicine. I kind of equate it to the guy that gets silver and he, got, he decides to bury it in the field rather than amplify it. We ought to embrace the gifts of science because these are gifts of God. Um, and I really, I think in, in reverence to God, you know, I pray that the world will, will more and more accept the gifts that he gives us, even though they may be foreign to them, like something like science. You know, everyone used to think that maybe I was an oxymoron because, quote, I was a man of great faith, but I was a scientist. No, science is a gift from God. So I pray that our world will embrace the science um, and use it for God's purpose, because science is a critical, important tool that God has given us to improve the human condition. And um, Heavenly Father, thanks also for giving us Robert Redfield and for all the service he's given all of America. Well, thanks, Jack, for the opportunity. And I appreciate your faith, your commitment, and more importantly, your decision to continue to spread the word that with God, all things are possible. We just need to believe. Please join us next Saturday. Until then, I'm Jack Pasula. Thanks for listening and make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spawn. Believe in yourself.